everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I'm the host of this program and we are so glad you're here. Before we get going, I just want to give a quick acknowledgement to our podcast patrons out there. Thank you all so much for your continued support of this program. We really appreciate you and couldn't do any of this without your help. And if you would like to learn more about how to support JCM or this podcast, please consider following the link that's in the description of this episode. Well, today is the episode part two of Developing an Effective Prayer Life, the Tabernacle of Moses. And I hope I can do this topic justice today. I usually teach on the Tabernacle of Moses live using visual aids, (laughs) so I'm doing neither today. But I just love this teaching so much, and I really hope that it blesses you the way that it has blessed me. Now, in part one, we learned three key reasons on why we pray. Prayer is not just about making petitions known, but it's about coming to know God and developing intimacy with Him and surrendering all to serve Him. The exercise of praying through the tabernacle, hopefully, will begin to take us on the steps to that deeper level. I know it has been super helpful to me, and I hope it will be the same for you. Now, to set this up, I need to give some background to the tabernacle. There's a lot of you out there who know very little about this topic. No fault of your own, it's just not taught. So I'm going to try to keep it relatively simple, but we still have to go through some background on what the tabernacle is and how it operated. Then we'll go into the exercise. So let me begin. After God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai a divine design for something called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a collapsible, transportable, tent-like structure that served God's purpose as being his sanctuary. In other words, it held God's presence. The tabernacle became God's sanctuary for hundreds of years before the Temple of Solomon was built. So from Moses to Solomon, this was the dwelling place of God in order to make it possible for him to meet with his people. Now in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews It says this about the tabernacle in chapter 8, that it was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed. Moses was given a pattern of something God wanted him to build, a replica of something already in existence in heaven. And so what became known as the tabernacle or tabernacle of Moses was an earthly copy of the heavenly sanctuary. And what's even more astounding than that is that every part of it foreshadows Christ. Now, Exodus Exodus chapters 25 to 40 give a detailed account of the design and construction of it. But like I said, I'm going to try to keep it pretty simple. It had three sections to it. And in those three sections, there were only seven pieces of furniture placed within those sections. Now, I pay attention to numbers in the Bible, and that number seven is significant because seven means divine perfection or spiritual completion. And so I find it interesting that it's only seven furnishings needed to foreshadow Christ's finished work on the cross. Now, how those areas were laid out and the furnishings placed within are described by God in great detail in those and other chapters. They hold a significant purpose. Because each room or section ultimately led to the place 
that held God's presence, the most holy place it's called, or the Holy of Holies, where something called the Ark of the Covenant stood. Now, just as special care and instruction were given for those places and furnishings, there were also rules for the daily offerings, the sacrifices, and the ritual purification of the priests. Even the details concerning priestly garments and roles of the priests were to be carefully followed out. Well, once built, the tabernacle was situated in the middle of the 12 tribes of Israel. Picture an enormous campsite in the desert. The Israelites were living in tents at the time, divided by those tribes. Four tribes were camped to the north of the tabernacle, four to the south, four to the east, and four to the west, making the shape of a cross. And here it was, the tabernacle, located right in the center of camp, serving as a focal point of Israel's daily life. In this way, God, whose presence was manifested at the tabernacle as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, was continually at the center of his people. Now, a rectangular fence surrounded the tabernacle complex, kind of like a house would have a fenced-in yard around it. So the tabernacle, like I said, had three sections to it, and each section carried out different sacred activities on one of those seven furnishings. The first section was the courtyard, the front of the tabernacle, between the fence and the actual structure, and it was known as the outer court. It was the main access to the tabernacle. There was a wide gate where the Israelite people would enter in, bringing in their sacrifices and offerings to the priest. The priest would receive those offerings and bless the people. Then, in this courtyard, the priest would offer the sacrifice at what's called the bronze altar or brazen altar. If you need a visual, maybe picture a gigantic fire pit type structure with a grate on the top. I'm not sure. But either way, it was a bronze altar upon which the burnt offerings of animal sacrifices were presented to the Lord. Because once the altar was consecrated, Whatever touched it became holy. Now, standing between the altar and the entrance to the next section was, was what's called the bronze laver or the brazen laver, or some people call it basin. It was a large basin made with reflective glass that held water. It was used for Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, and he was the high priest, and his sons, the priests to wash their hands and feet before they entered the tabernacle. Being in the outer court made them dirty. You had the blood from the sacrifice, you had dirt from the ground. They needed to be clean before going any further. And it also says that in Exodus 30, they needed to be clean so that they would not die. God wanted his people to understand the importance of purity, especially as they drew closer to his presence. Well, once cleaned, the, prince, the priest would now enter into the second area, or the second section, the holy place. The holy place housed three important pieces of furniture for the service of the tabernacle. It held the golden lampstand, or menorah, a golden table called the table of showbread, or bread of presence, and lastly, the golden altar of incense, gold for all three pieces, symbolizing purity. Priests were the only ones permitted in the holy place. Here they performed daily tasks, such as keeping the lampstand burning, 
or offering incense twice a day on the altar of incense, and bringing fresh bread weekly to the table. Now, looking at these three pieces, let's start with the lampstand, the menorah. It was used to provide light for the priests to carry out their duties. And God gave precise instructions on how he wanted the lampstand to look. It was to be made of pure gold, hammered out to perfect accuracy. And the lampstand itself was to be fashioned as a tree with the base and center shaft representing the trunk and with three branches on each side. Now the top of the shaft of each branch was to be made like an open almond flower and each flower held an oil lamp. And the lamp was to be tended by the priest so that its light never went out, meaning the lampstand was to give forth light day and night. Now the lampstand cast its light on the table of showbread or bread of presence. It was a table that held a special bread that was always present on the table. It was made with fine flour. It was baked in 12 loaves, arranged in two piles of six loaves on the table, and it was covered with frankincense. And it was served as a memorial food offering to the Lord. The bread could only be eaten by the priests in the holy place and was set out every Sabbath day. Now stay with me. This will all make sense in a minute. Then lastly was the altar of incense. This was located before a curtain that divided the holy place from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Well, Aaron the priest was instructed to burn incense on the altar each morning and at twilight, every day, as a regular offering to the Lord. In Scripture, incense is often associated with prayer. And so God gave a special recipe for making this incense and commanded that no other no other kind of incense ever be burned on that altar. And the fire used to burn the incense was taken from the coals of the bronze altar of sacrifice in the outer court. Now I want to bring you into the New Testament for just a minute. Do you remember the story of Zacharias from Luke chapter 1? He's John the Baptist's father. He was a priest who was serving in the temple when an angel visited him to share the news that he and his wife would have a son and name him John. Do you remember what he was doing in the temple when the angel visited? Well, it was his turn as priest to burn the incense for the altar. This is the altar he was serving at. He was in the holy place at the altar of incense. The priesthood of Israel was separated into 24 divisions of which his division was one. So I'm just trying to tie it all in together for you. Because I think that once you learn about the tabernacle, you start seeing it all throughout the New Testament. Well, the last place of the tabernacle was the innermost and most sacred area, the Holy of Holies. It contained only the Ark of the Covenant, which was also made of pure gold. If you've ever seen, what was it, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, they were all after the Ark of the Covenant, remember? (laughs) Well, this is what was housed in the Holy of Holies. It symbolized Israel's special relationship with God. The Holy of Holies was accessible only to the Israelite high priest one time a year. And that was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where he offered the blood of the sacrifice to God to atone for the sins of the Israelite people, the whole nation. And so the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle and later the temple 
by this veil, a huge, heavy drapery made of fine linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and embroidered with gold cherubim. So do you have a bit of a picture? I'm sorry I don't have a visual aid. Now with that in mind, let's go on our prayer journey. Walking through this example will take some time because I'll be doing a lot of explaining. But in your own personal time, you can walk through this in whatever time frame you set for yourself. So I first want to encourage you, begin by getting your heart and mind quiet. We are entering into a time of not only prayer, but as you're going to see, consecration. Because as a reminder, we are entering into a private encounter with the living God, coming before his throne to obtain mercy and grace. So we must always remember that when we enter into prayer, we should enter into it reverently. Now, before we begin, I just want to remind you of one more thing before we get started. And it's this. It's something very important about your identity in Christ. You see, the tabernacle of Moses, as I was just reading, was tended by priests. And Peter calls the followers of Christ a holy and royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2. That means you and me and every believer out there, we are part of a holy and royal priesthood. And being a holy and royal priesthood means we have access and the authority to serve the king and come into his presence the way that these men did. Peter says that we as living stones, a holy priesthood, are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll be doing today. Much like the priests back in the times of Moses and beyond offered physical sacrifices, well, we as priests offer spiritual ones. In fact, Paul says one of those is our bodies, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. To be a living sacrifice means we daily offer ourselves on the Lord's altar for service. Whether we're sacrificing praise, prayer, thanksgiving, it doesn't matter. So just so you know, as we walk through this, we are walking through it as a holy and royal priesthood to our King. So let's begin. As we enter into the outer court, the first place we stop is the bronze altar, the place of sacrifice. As we begin our time of prayer, we stop here and reflect on Christ and his sacrifice for mankind. Humans cannot approach God's presence without first dealing with sin, whether it was priests of the tabernacle or us today. They could not enter in until a sacrifice was made. And so I just want to point out in this place that the Hebrew word for sacrificial offering is the word korban, and it's a word that comes from the root korav, which means to draw near. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system was a means to draw near to God. We too cannot draw near unless a sacrifice is made. For no one comes to the Father except through the Son. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the bronze altar. Jesus, Jesus shed blood as the Lamb who was slain 
became the atonement, the covering for our sin, the access we have into the presence of God. And one of the mysteries of faith is the power of blood. The shedding of blood served as a symbolic payment of debt and covering of spiritual stain caused by sin, leading to redemption and atonement for believers. In the times leading up to Christ's death, the blood shed for this purpose was animals, but later it was Jesus' own blood that paid that price, making blood in the economy of God the currency for atonement. And as the bronze altar was consecrated, as the bronze altar altar when it was consecrated made anything that touched it holy, so too does Christ's blood make us now holy ones, saints. And so the first step in prayer is a place of of humility where we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, pausing here to reflect on Christ being the sacrifice for our sins. We don't do this often enough. This is where we need to reflect on the price paid for our life daily, daily reflecting on this, how the innocent died for the guilty. Choosing today to walk in a manner worthy to bear the name of the one who set us free, worthy to bear the name of the only one who could redeem us from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is no small thing. We should never take our salvation for granted. So we thank Jesus Christ here for his blood. The blood that scripture says speaks better things than that of Abel, which speaks mercy, not judgment. It also says you were not redeemed with things like gold or silver that perish, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And so take time now to meditate on this and give him the glory due his name for such a sacrifice. It is only because of the blood that we now have gained access into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. Moving on now to the next piece of furnishing, we come to the bronze laver, the place where priests would go to be cleansed before entering into the holy place. The laver is fulfilled in Christ because he washes us clean and makes us white as snow. So first you had the basin, and covered on the inside was reflective glass, only not like mirrors like we're used to. It was dull. It was fuzzy. It was you couldn't see your reflection too clear. But here is where the priests would wash and reflect as they gazed upon their own reflection. And this too, my friend, is where we pause and examine our own lives. When is the last time you examined yourself? Your faith. Most times we rush into prayer without giving thought to examining our life beforehand. And so we need to ask ourselves, what condition after the sacrifice, what condition are we entering into God's presence? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so pause here now and ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and bring things to mind that need confessing and cleansing. Confession isn't just at conversion. It's a daily cleansing of our temple. Psalm 139 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. 
or Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Just as God wanted his priests and people to understand the importance of purity, he wants no less of us, especially as we are on our way to approach his throne of grace. Is your heart clean before a holy God? Have you mixed Christ with other things since your conversion? Have you mixed him with wickedness? Do you do tarot cards? Do you watch defiling movies or music? Do you practice New Age practices or believe in New Age beliefs or other activities? Or how about anxieties? What are you anxious about? Your children? Your job? Your marriage? Society? Death? The psalmist says, try me and know my anxieties. Test us, O Lord, to know what we're anxious about. And so as you're asking the Holy Spirit to bring things to mind that you can confess, when he does, confess them, repent of them, lay it all at the feet of Jesus. Ephesians 5.26 tells us that we are cleansed with the washing of water by the word. Let his word discover your condition in this place by aligning your life with his word and figuring out where is it misaligned. And so the bronze lava is our pit stop. It is this place where we pause and stop and it is a place of confession and cleansing before we go further now into the holy practice of intercessory prayer. So confess your sins, your anxiety, your mixing, like I said, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is showing you and convicting you of. Confess it here. Get it out. Lay it down. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Cleanse yourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, friend, if you have never stopped to ask the Holy Spirit to show you things so you can be cleansed, when else are you going to be cleansing except in prayer? And so that is what we're doing here. It's like taking a spiritual bath. And 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The moment you confess, the moment I confess, and I confess every day, his precious blood of mercy washes everything away. Now you're clean. You're covered by his blood washed in his mercy, and ready for the next step. But here's the thing. Most Christians stop there. Most Christians today are content to stay in the outer court, content with the sacrifice of Christ, the washing away of sin. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. But they never enter into the next place. They never enter in to the fullness. But that's where we're going next. We have acknowledged the sacrifice, the blood needed to draw near. We've examined our lives. We are moving now from the bronze furnishings that represent sin, judgment, and cleansing. And we are moving now into a place of consecration, a place of purity and holiness where gold furnishings are. It's the holy place, the place where we now cultivate Im intimacy and begin to learn how to surrender. And the first place we stop is the lampstand. Jesus is the fulfillment of the lampstand by being the light 
of the world. John 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Only in Christ, my friends, can we have life and light. And when that light shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot seize it, take it, comprehend it. And so, friend, it is here that we must tend to our lampstand. We must tend to the light of Christ within us. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his followers, You are the light of the world. In Christ, we are the lampstand of the Lord in this dark world. And so it is here where we tend to that lampstand. Priests tended to the lampstand night and day, and that is what you and I must get to. You and I are a holy and royal priesthood that we should be tending to our lamp, our lampstands day and night. And so first the priests, they would check the oil levels and refill when necessary using only the purest oil of beaten olives when they did. Next, they would check the wicks to see if the wicks were trimmed. Well, how does that look for us? Well, for us, Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. Christ is Christos in Greek, Messiah is Mashiach in Hebrew, and it means anointed one. The only way, my friend, that our lampstand can be filled is by the Spirit of God filling us with the anointing of the anointed one himself. And if you have never asked Christ to fill you with his spirit, to fill you with his anointing, then pause here and ask Messiah, ask Christ to fill you to the full of himself, to fill you with his anointing. Ask him for everything he has for you. He is the purest oil we can have fill our lamps because he was pressed in Gethsemane like pure olives were pressed for the lampstand of the tabernacle. Many of us today, especially those of us still in the outer court, are operating with empty oil lamps like half of the virgins of the parable of the ten virgins. And my friend, at some point, we're going to run out when it matters most. So tend to your lampstand. We need to be filled every day with Christ's anointing, the Holy Spirit. Every day I ask him to be filled because you know what? This world is trying to suck the life right out of us. So we need his filling, at least me. I need his filling every day. And so this is our place, friend, where we start to learn to abide, where we start to trust in his presence living within us, his presence flowing freely. Otherwise, we are limited in what we can do. This is why confession is an important part in the prior step. Because without confession, sometimes there's blockages in the pipe. But when you confess and everything's cleansed and you have taken that spiritual bath, there's no blockages anymore. And so all of a sudden, the the abiding sap of Christ from the vine to the branches can flow freely through you. And that lampstand in the tabernacle is a picture of the vine and the branches, isn't it? It's a picture of a tree with the stump and the vine and the branches. The priests also kept the wicks trimmed. 
When you light a candle in your home, if the wick is not trimmed, what does the wick look like? It looks a little bit clumpy, right? It's got little balls and stuff on it. And then it gives off a, a flickering, unbalanced and unpredictable flame. But when a wick is trimmed, it burns evenly, giving off the fullest light. Having our wicks trimmed is asking the Holy Spirit to set our life in order. Every day, Holy Spirit, set my life in order for the glory of the King. Trim off the clumps that don't belong. Trim off the people, the places, the things that hinder me from giving off the fullest light. And so my question to you here is, what has attached itself to your wick to make your life clumpy? To where you're not giving off the fullest flame of the lampstand that you're supposed to be, but rather a dim light. And so once you start tending to your lampstand being a priest, be sure to check in with yourself day and night. Pay attention to how you give off light. Things impact us daily. And our response in those times is important. Because you see, the lampstand's role in the tabernacle cast its light upon the table of showbread. And that is what the light of Christ in us should do. It should never give glory to ourself, but always give glory back to Christ. Just as the bread at the table of showbread was set out before God's presence every day, so too is Christ's presence always before us. And that is how he fulfills the table of showbread. The table of showbread is a place on the journey where we just might want to linger a little longer in Christ's presence because he is our sustenance, our bread of life. And so here I take time to reflect on how much I need this bread. Do you hunger and thirst after him and his righteousness? Because you're promised to be filled if you do. I want to sit and have a meal with Christ. This is where I start getting to know him. This is where my intimacy is growing. I can't live on earthly bread alone. I live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it's a question to ask in this place. Are you living in his word? Are you living by his word? Are you living for his word? Are you stopping in prayer to just enjoy your savior? This is where we commune. This is where we enjoy intimacy as if we're sharing that meal together. Maybe this is a good place to stop in your prayer and open your Bible and enjoy his word. The bread of presence was also topped with frankincense. And this is what Paul says our lives do when we carry his true presence. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. When you develop intimacy with Christ and linger in his presence to get to know him more, guess what? The fragrance from the bread of presence himself rubs off on you. And whether you know it or not, his fragrance on you diffuses through you into every place you go. People will be drawn to Christ in you, and you will have no idea why someone stops you in the grocery store, why someone stops you on the street and just starts talking to you because they're drawn to him. They're drawn to the fragrance of Christ in you. And now moving on from here, we come to the altar of incense, a place of intercession. 
Every follower of Christ is called to be an intercessor, a person of prayer. It is not something for only a few. I know that's a shocker to a lot of you out there, but it's for all believers. Here is where the priest would burn incense day and night, giving off a sweet aroma before God. This is what Zecharias did, right? John the Baptist's father. This is the station he worked. Sacrifice in the outer court produced the stench of death. Here in the holy place, it was different. The altar of incense produced a sweet aroma. Christ is the fulfillment of the altar of incense in a couple of ways. Coals from the sacrifice at the bronze altar in the altar in the outer court would be brought in to provide the fire for the altar of incense. Then special incense had to be made to place on top of that altar, but it had to be sweet incense. And it was to burn on the altar every morning and every evening at twilight, nonstop. In fact, the Lord called it a perpetual incense. In this altar, my friends, we have a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. The coals of the bronze altar represent Christ's sacrifice, while the incense represented the sweetness of his resurrection. (laughs) I mean, you can't make this up. It's a reminder that God's wrath has turned away. And because of this holy exchange, it is forbidden that no strange incense, there is to be no strange incense or no strange offering offered on this altar. And then once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come and make atonement for all of Israel by placing the blood of the sin offering on the horns of this altar, the four corners, representing Christ who was bound to the cross. This too was commanded by God to be done throughout their generations. Then the high priest would make intercession for the people, for all of Israel, and the incense would cover the offense of human sin in God's sight. It is such a powerful picture. Well, friend, no longer is a high priest needed, for Christ is now the high priest of heaven and our high priest He is the mediator for us to the Father, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, and he intercedes on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 25 says he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As high priest, he makes intercession for us. And that is a profound comfort. So not only are we reminded of the sweetness of redemption, but also that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And so it is here at the altar of incense where we pause for a while and enter into a time of intercession, a time of prayer. Here we offer spiritual sacrifices as said by Peter. Sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise and prayer, our petitions, our service, our bodies, Paul says, everything. Here is where we surrender. We lay it all out at his feet. And you can stay in this place as long as you like. You know, the book of Revelation, it is a 
beautiful picture of the heavenly tabernacle. It's the beautiful picture of the heavenly tabernacle. Because uh, I don't know if any of you noticed, if you've ever read through it, every chapter from start to finish just about is talking about something in the heavenly tabernacle. And in it, it gives us a glimpse of the altar of incense in chapter eight. I just want to read it to you. It says, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. That's the altar of incense, which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to earth. Boy, what a powerful picture. When you read the book of Revelation again, pause in all of the places where it's talking about altars and all of the activity of heaven. You'll be astounded at the picture of the tabernacle. Well, this brings us to the final stop in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant found in the Holy of Holies. This was behind the veil of the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was a box type of structure where the stone tablets of Moses of the law were placed, and it was covered by a lid called the mercy seat. The Ark was the central focus of both the tabernacle and the temple, and once a year, only the high priest could enter into this room one time a year to obtain mercy for the people of Israel. Doing so by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. I mean, can you start to see the full picture? The ark and the mercy seat was a symbolic foreshadowing of not only the blood of Christ being shed on the cross for the remission of sins, but also Christ fulfilling the law, the mercy seat covering the law. It's profound, my friends. With Christ as our high priest, We are able now, as said in Hebrews 4.16, to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To come boldly means to be confident, be of good cheer. At the mercy seat, mercy triumphs over judgment. This is where we meet with the Lord and receive from him. We receive his mercy and grace. This is a beautiful place to sit and listen. This is what I do, at least in there. It's like a child coming upon the lap of a good father. We've done all the talking, right? Now it's a beautiful place to receive and listen. You know, at Jesus' death, the gospels say that the veil in the temple was rent in two. Well, this is the veil it's talking about, the veil between the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. The old system of having mediators was no longer. We can now come directly into the presence of God ourselves through Jesus Christ, his son, our high priest who made the way. It is so staggering. Not only that, at Jesus's tomb, Mary Magdalene, When she went to the tomb, she saw two angels, one sitting at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body has laid. A perfect picture of the mercy seat because the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, at each end had two angels sitting 
with their faces covered over the mercy seat. See, friends, it's in the holiest place, this ark, this throne of God, where I find my peace and rest. I go through my journey. Some days it takes me a long time. Some days it's shorter. But when my prayer journey is complete, I know now that I can go out into my day and do his will with with complete submission and surrender. I have spent time in his presence, time in intimacy. I spent another day learning the sweetness of surrender. What more could I ask or even want? So this is what a journey through the tabernacle looks like in Christ. Isn't the Bible just amazing? Isn't God amazing to have put all of that together? And the more you learn about the tabernacle, you're going to start to see all of its features reflected clearly throughout all the New Testament writings. Not to mention, like I said, the whole book of Revelation is a peek into the heavenly sanctuary itself. It truly is a wondrous thing. And so to recap, you walk through the sacrifice. You come to the place of cleansing. You check on your lampstand. You spend time in the presence of God, sharing a meal with him at the table of showbread. You then come to the altar of incense in order to uh, make intercession and prayer. And then you come boldly into his presence to receive from him the mercy and grace that you are requesting. Prayer should never, ever, ever be something you dread, my friend. It is a holy experience through and through. And it is so holy, you should enjoy entering into it. I try to enjoy my tabernacle journey as often as I can, only because when I do, I am so blessed. But do however you want it to work for you. So I hope this blessed you today and gave you some things to think about Please don't forget to click on the link of this podcast um, if you want to help support JCM in some way and also to get a picture of the tabernacle if you like. And God bless you today. Until we meet again. Mm-hmm.